You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this morning we are looking at Psalm 29, so I invite you to turn there with me. Psalm 29, it is on page 461 of our Pew Bibles. If you're using one of those, you can turn there. We continue our march through this first book of the Psalter, Psalms 1 through 41, and we'll see today the main theme of this whole book is the kingship of God. It comes through very clearly in our text this morning. But before we read it, I just want to highlight for you the the structure of this psalm so you can be aware of it as we read it. It begins with the first two verses as something of a call to worship, calling us to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, uh, to to worship the Lord. And then that's carried out in the body, verses 3 through 9, a description of God's power as it focuses on God's voice, the voice of the Lord. And we worship God as we consider his power. And then it comes to the conclusion, verses 10 and 11, and culminating there in verse 11 with this great request that God would bless us. So call to worship, an act of worship, and then a call to bless, a request that God would bless us. So with the structure in mind, let us now go to God's word. Let us hear God's authoritative, inspired, and inerrant word for you and for me this morning from Psalm 29. Hear now the word of the Lord, a Psalm of David. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. And in his temple, all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. As we've gone through now the 29th Psalm, we see every Psalm is unique and plunges us into a unique world. It is true, as we've said before, Calvin has said about the Psalms that it is an anatomy of every part of the soul. Times for grieving, times for confusion, times where you don't understand what's going on. There's a Psalm that explains that. Here today, though, we come to a Psalm of victory. It's about as triumphant as they come, especially this early in the Psalter. But the themes here arise out of Psalm 28, the last several Psalms that were cries to God for help in the midst of trouble And we see in Psalm 28, in verse verse 8, it says, The Lord is the strength of his people, 
the strength of his people. And we see that idea exploded here in Psalm 29, the strength of his people, the power of God on clear display. But what sets this Psalm apart from all the other ones so far is that it has very close ties to Ugaritic texts. I know that's exactly what you were thinking. It has very close ties to ancient Canaanite texts. Now, some would even go so far to say that David is simply copying a Canaanite Ugaritic poet, poetic text, a hymn to one of their gods, and he's just repurposing it or a hymn for Yahweh. I'm not sure this is probably, I'm not sure this is correct. We have no evidence that that is true. It's just a a hypothesis. But I think it's more likely that David here is using imagery from the surrounding world, imagery that people would know to show that the God of Israel is greater and stronger and more powerful than any of the other gods of the other peoples. See, this comes at a certain place in Israel's history. Remember, Israel was in Egypt. They were, they were, Slaves in Egypt and God delivered them out of Egypt and took them to the promised land. After years of wandering, he brought them to the land of Canaan. That was the promised land. But when Israel got there, God tasked them with eradicating all of the people who were in the land and eradicating their religion, eradicating their beliefs, eradicating the gods in whom they trusted. But Israel failed to do it. Israel did not, even from the earliest days, get rid of all of the gods of the Canaanite peoples. And this ultimately became their downfall in years to come. And David was writing to warn Israel about this, to remind them, do not seek after other gods. That first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods in my presence. Eradicate all of these other gods. And David is reminding Israel of that requirement. And David is directly and intentionally attacking the other gods and their other religions. And what David really is doing is the task of apologetics. The task of apologetics. And what he's doing first is undermining the belief of these unbelievers. Uh, it's telling them that they're, they're trusting in gods who, who have no power. But it's also, this task of apologetics is also bolstering the faith of the believers, strengthening them to say, yes, our God is so great and so powerful, so wonderful. And we hear of the Christian task of apologetics today. Christian task of apologetics is not so much talking about false gods, idols that people make, and other deities that they worship. But the task of apologetics today is nonetheless still important. It's ever more important in the realm of of truth. Is there truth? What is truth? And ethics. How do we live in a world where the idea of sexuality and, and human nature are undermined everywhere we turn? Apologetics are important, but we're going to come back and and situate ourselves in this ancient Near Eastern mindset and understand how David is making this point, how this wonderful Psalm points us to the glory of the true God. Because the power of God is unmatched, we can be confident in his promise of peace for us. Because the power of God is unmatched, we can be confident in his promise of peace for us. And I hesitate to do this today, but we will have two points in our sermons. You'll see in a moment why I hesitate to do that. Really, we're going to spend most of our time on point one, and point two will be our summary and conclusion at the end. But point one is the power of God, and second is the peace of God. Let's consider the power of God. The power as, he is, as, he is, as it is described in this psalm. 
This idea is central, but it's shrouded in the culture of these ancient peoples. And David unleashes a barrage of attacks upon the ancient gods. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to see 10 attacks upon the gods of the Canaanites and demonstrate the true God's power. So really here we're having 10 points, but we'll move quickly. 10 points, 10 ways this Psalm is attacking the neighboring gods. So first is the repeated use of the true God's name, Yahweh. 18 times in 11 verses, the name Yahweh is used. Now we said this before, but if you look at verse one, the, the word Lord there, ascribed to the Lord, you see that the word Lord is written with funny letters. It's written in small capital letters. And this is a designation in the ESV in our English Bibles that there's a special word used here in the Hebrew. And this special word is the word the scholars pronounce today, Yahweh. Scholars of previous generation would say Jehovah. It's speaking of the same Hebrew word that is God's personal covenantal name that he gave to his people. So this is how we identify God above all the other so-called gods that were out there. So we ascribe to the Lord Yahweh, this glory and strength. This is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who brought Israel out of slavery and into their promised land. And this Psalm is highly repetitive and that's like Ugaritic poetry. Ugaritic poetry is highly repetitive. We see ascribed to the Lord many times, the voice of the Lord many times. And we see particularly the word Lord repeated over and over and over, mimicking how these ancients would write their poetry, but saying, who is the one sovereign over things? Truly, we're going to name him over and over and over. It is Yahweh who is God, not your so-called gods. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is king. Yahweh sits enthroned over and over and over using the name of the true God to demonstrate his power, his authority. Point one, see, we're moving quickly. Point two, the second attack is a call to worship. The call to worship is directed at heavenly beings. See verse one, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. This is an interesting phrase. Many debate what this means. Is this speaking of angels? Angels, are we calling angels to worship? This is a Hebrew phrase, bene elim, or translated woodenly, sons of the gods. O you sons of the gods. And this is actually pulling, it looks like, pulling from the Ugaritic language, a phrase that was used to describe their pantheon of gods. And so it seems in the context of what's going on in this Psalm that actually David is talking to the false gods here. Ascribe to the Lord, O you false gods. O you pantheon of Canaanite gods. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. So it's actually a call, a direct attack on the false gods as if they could praise him, calling them, you are subservient. If you even existed, you are subservient to the greatest God. And so how much more if these pantheon of false gods are to Worship the Lord, how much more ought to the Canaanite people worship God? How much more should we worship him? So second was the call to worship directed to heavenly beings. The third attack is that Yahweh is greater than the water. And we come to verse three here. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord over many waters. If you look at Israel geographically, to the west was water the Mediterranean Sea, but also to the east was water, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, down to the Dead Sea, 
So they were surrounded on both east and west with water. And he's speaking here of God being greater, Yahweh being greater than even the water. Now in their mindset, in the mindset of all ancient peoples, the water was a dangerous place. The water was a dangerous thing. It's a place of uncertainty, extreme danger and fear. A storm that arose out of the water, if you were on a boat, was powerful and deadly. You have no control over it. So there was an innate fear people had of the water. The Canaanite religions, they had a God named Yom. Yom, who is the God of the sea. And so when there was a, a storm that came out of the sea, or if you were fishing and, you're, and there was a storm that came, you would pray to, the, to Yom to protect you. But yet also in the Canaanite mythology, uh, they believed that Yom was conquered ultimately by the god Baal. Whereas in the south, we say Baal. This god Baal came and conquered Yom. He came and, 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 and showed his power over this false sea god. And so the Canaanites worshiped ultimately Baal. But there was always a war between them. And whenever there was a, a storm on the sea, was it Yom who was winning or was Baal the one who was winning? That was in the mind of the Canaanites. But here it's un, there's no confusion. It's clear that who is over the waters? It is the voice of Yahweh. You see these other gods who might be wrestling and fighting and maybe Baal comes out on top, but it is Yahweh. He is the one who is over the waters. He is the one with authority over the sea. We see this isn't Jesus, the one who commands the waves and the sea. Peace. And it was. The voice of the Lord is the one over the water. Yahweh is depicted as Lord over Yom and even Baal, who's considered the most powerful of the gods. So third, Yahweh is greater than the water. Fourth, Yahweh is greater than the thunder. We saw that in verse three, the God of glory thunders. In verse seven, we have lightning as well. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. This grand storm that is brewing in the ocean, the storm of thunder and lightning that's coming. Think about the ancient mind. They had no, they had no sound reinforcement. There's no sound amplification. Maybe there were gatherings of, of people that were loud. Maybe they went to a sporting event and there was loud cheering. But I would guess that the loudest noise that the ancient people ever heard was the sound of thunder. This was the sound in the Canaanite mind of the voice of Baal. When they heard the thunder, the thunder was Baal speaking. Baal demonstrating his power and the lightning strikes was Baal coming down to earth seeking revenge or justice, something of the sort. But David says, no, the thunder is not Baal. The thunder, the lightning, it is God who is over them. God is the God of thunder. Baal is, has no power over you. The thunder comes from Yahweh, Israelite, Israel's God. So Yahweh is greater than the thunder and lightning. And fifth, we have Yahweh is greater than the mountains. Come to verses five and six. And the mountains here, again, geographically looking at Israel, in the north were the Lebanon mountains. The Lebanon mountains. And so these references in verses five and six uh, to Lebanon is speaking of the mountain range to the north of Israel. Verse six, Sirion is a particular mountain, also called Mount Hermon, which is the largest, the tallest mountain in the Lebanon range. And so what David is doing now is going to this mountain range, this mountain range that was known for its grand cedar trees, some being 130 feet tall, some eight feet in diameter, incredible trees. And you'll remember David's son, Solomon, 
who built the temple, built it with cedars of Lebanon. He built his palace of cedars of Lebanon. It was world-renowned. These Lebanon mountains were known for their powerful and strong and mighty cedars of Lebanon. And so here, God is the one who breaks the cedars. He is God over the cedars, God over the mountains, demonstrating God's authority and power there. But more than just that, the mountains were considered by the Canaanites to be the dwelling place of the gods. The three largest mountains in the Lebanon mountains are all capped by snow all year round. So it's not a place where people could go very easily. People surely couldn't stay and reside there. So that's where the gods went. The mountains were a place of mystery, a place of danger, and the gods resided there. The gods would would get together there. The gods would do their business there. And so the mountains were a particularly spiritual place for these Canaanite people. And again, David drives right at them. There is no such thing as your gods. There is a greater God who is God over all of these mountains. When Baal was enthroned, yeah, there's a grand enthronement ceremony. And a part of that was he would, would issue his voice of thunder and would cause earthquakes. So his enthronement ceremony consisted of earthquakes of the mountains. And then he grabbed a large cedar in his right hand as a weapon. And you see how all of this imagery is reversed and magnified and said, no, this is not about Baal, the God of heaven and earth. Yahweh is the God of these mountains. Verse five, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. God makes the mountains skip. This is less of an image of joyful skipping around, but more of a reference to the disjointed, undulating gait of a sheep or an ox. Whereas a horse might, horse's gait might be more steady, sheep are moving and rocking. That's the kind of earthquake that God can bring to these mountains. All of the cedars he holds in his hand. God is the one who brings the earthquake. God is the one who is over the mountains. Six, Yahweh is greater than the wilderness. We see this in verses eight and nine. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare. If you look at, again, the geography of Israel, we've seen the east and the west with the, with the, with the water. We've seen the north of the mountains. We now come to the south with the wilderness. God is God of the wilderness as well. He brings the earthquake. He can strip the forest bare. He even oversees the small deer in giving birth. Even those places where there are no inhabitants, maybe there are not even any Canaanite gods dwelling, Yahweh is still there, still Lord, still ruling. And we have, as it were, full geography around Israel. All pieces, all parts of the earth where God rules and reigns. Seventh, Yahweh's mere voice is more powerful than anyone else's actions. We see the word voice used seven times in just these few verses. The voice of the Lord. And this word in Hebrew can mean voice based on context, but it also has a a, a somewhat elastic meaning or a broader uh, uh, semantic domain range. It can also mean a noise or a sound. And so we have in a poetic way, here we have the, the sound of the Lord, the noise of the Lord, the thunder of the Lord. Now we've encircled the entire 
Israel. We see God's thundering presence all throughout the world. A progressing thunderstorm, the God of power. I think it's right as we translate it voice primarily, as we see God speaking and we see theologically, God is a God who speaks. God did not come down here. God is not one who who gets down and and personally is, is fighting or using physical exertion and strength to defeat other gods. What is being used here? It is God's voice. His word is all that is necessary for God to demonstrate his power. As Herman Bovink reminds us, the word of God is never just a sound, but a power. Not mere information, but also an accomplishment of his will. By this word, Jesus quiets the sea, heals the sick, casts out demons, raised the dead. And we have here a God who speaks. A God who's speaking, a God who from the beginning of time said, let there be, and there was. A God who spoke all things into existence, a God whose whose word sustains all things, and a God who redeems us by his word. You see in Acts over and over and over, the heartbeat of the word uh, of the book of Acts is the word of God continued to increase. And many came to Christ and the gospel went forward. It is the word of God where God is speaking today. He brings the dead to life through his word. As Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead by simply speaking, Lazarus come out. God's voice is more powerful than any of these so-called gods. God is not exerting any energy. He's not being used up in any way. When he brings the thunder, it's his word. It is his mere will and he accomplishes it. There's no limit to the power of God and the voice of God. This dwarfs all other earthly powers, whether they're powers that we think you and I have, physical powers, or whether they're these so-called gods, that they're spiritual powers. God dwarfs them all. So seventh, God's mere voice is more powerful than anyone else's actions. Eight, he come to the whole world as his temple. And this is at the end of verse nine. It summarizes all that's happened, this whole world, north, south, east, and west. And it's summarized with the statement that this is his temple. All of this is God's temple. Yes, we had a particular temple in Jerusalem, a particular place where they worshiped, but that was just a microcosm of what the universe was to be and what the universe will be again when Christ returns and makes all things new. The whole universe is God's temple where he is to be honored, where he is to be glorified, where he is supreme. And we have this statement that all these little gods, might th- you might think that they live in the mountains, you might think Yom is over the sea, you might think Baal has, has, has lightning and thunder on his side, but no, they all exist in Yahweh's temple. This whole earth is for his glory. It's his house. It was built for him, for his fame and for his honor. So it undermines them by showing us this whole world is his his temple. And then we come to number nine. No one is exempted from saying glory. This wonderful statement at the end of verse nine, everyone, this temple expands to the whole world and everyone will cry glory. I love the wonderful terseness of poetry. This beautiful summary statement. He is glorious. He indeed is the king of the temple. He indeed is the one we are to worship. 
We bow down before him and give him all glory and praise. We cry, glory. Even those who refuse now will ultimately and finally shout glory. There's nobody exempt from this promise. Everybody will say glory. Everybody will worship the true God of heaven and earth. All will fall before Yahweh. Even these heavenly beings, these sons of the gods, even Baal and Yom and Mot and all of them, they will glorify God. If they are real, they will all cry, glory to Yahweh. This is true of every human being as well. We have that same exact promise here in Philippians of Jesus Christ. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That same exact promise that no matter who you are, no matter how you lived your life, no matter what happened, whether you profess faith in this life or not in Jesus Christ, there will be a day you will fall on your knees before Jesus. You will cry glory. The question is, will you cry glory? The fellowship of all of God's people and the heavenly hosts in the presence of his gracious face? Or will you cry glory because you understand it now because you are under the judgment and curse for eternity because of your sin? Which one is it? Will you cry glory now in this life and be saved from your sins? Or will you continue to rebel, continue to call out to God such as Baal and Mot and cry glory in the next life only? No one is exempt from saying glory. And then we come to the 10th way that we're attacking these false gods is the floods of judgment are subject to him. Floods of judgment, we see this in verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. He is enthroned. He is king. And in case you didn't get it in the poetic imagery that came before, God is king. Yahweh is king. He is enthroned. Everything is under his domain and authority. There's nothing outside of his scope. He is king, even the flood. And this flood is an image of judgment. As we go all the way back to Genesis 6 and the flood that came to the earth because of the wickedness of man. And then Peter connects that to the coming judgment of fire upon this earth for our sin. God is even God over the coming judgments. The greatest forces believed to be in existence in ancient Israel were just shown to be inferior to the only true God. Will you be subject to the same judgment as these gods or will you be on his side and saved from this judgment? Now, as we say all of this and you think, okay, yes, this is talking about these false gods, but who today really cares, right? We don't worship Baal. We don't worship these other gods. We don't have these lesser deities today. So I think we're tempted to just quickly move on and say that's something nice for them. Even unbelievers today would say, you know, we're just so much more sophisticated than these ancient people. We don't believe in gods. This was just a way for people who don't know much to make sense of the experiences that they can't control. 
There's a sudden thunderstorm must be some kind of God. A dry season that leads to poor crops must be some kind of God. A death of a child, there must be some God doing something. But I don't think we really are more sophisticated today. We might have a lot of explanation at the physical level. If we want to know the weather, we pull up an app on our phone and we can see instantly what the weather is going to be. So we're not afraid of the thunderstorms. We have homes and we have beautiful buildings and places we can, we can, we can get out of the way for safety. We have medicine. We have so many wonderful things that protect us from the things that the ancient Near East people were afraid of. But we're not more sophisticated spiritually because without Yahweh, we're all yearning for an explanation for it all. Maybe we live under the illusion that, we're in, under, that we have it all under control. Maybe we have the illusion that we're powerful that I can do whatever. I can communicate with somebody across the world instantly through the magic box in my pocket. We can do so many things, but without Yahweh, we're still yearning for an explanation. And the favored God of today is not Baal or Yom or Mot. I think the God of the day is the self. The God of the day is myself. The God of the day is trying to make my kingdom great. I think I am just as powerful as Baal was in the days of old because I have technology. I have smarts. I have a network. I have financial means and we build our own kingdoms. But this belief in Yahweh, it radically undermines our belief in ourselves as God. We see my feelings are not ultimate. My desires are not ultimate. As a creature, I'm made for the service of the Almighty, this all-powerful God. And it orients us towards the one who gives life, who sustains life, and who has come to us in the brokenness of sin to redeem us and give us eternal life. We come to the same God of which David points us. We see life is not about me any longer. And what a freedom that is. We were not meant to carry the burden of that. It's about God. It's about glorifying him and enjoying him forever. And so we come to our second point. This is a conclusion, don't worry. Power of peace. Peace. I love the way this ends. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. We see the God who has all power. We see the God who, is, who can destroy anyone and anything. The one who sits enthroned over the flood. And what do we ask for? We ask strength, for strength from him. We ask for peace from him. And this is what he gives to his people. This is the promise of the grace of God. This is the promise of the gospel that you will have strength from God, that you will have all peace from him in Christ. Paul writes in Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the ultimate deepest peace that the Canaanites could not find in their gods. We have Jesus Christ, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What is peace? Peace is knowing the God of power. Peace is knowing him and his graciousness and his goodness in Christ. And of course, it raises the question, if 
God is blessing his people with peace. Who are his people? Who receives peace? It's those who look to Christ in faith. Those who don't spurn him. Those who do not run after the Baals of the world. The ones who run after Jesus Christ, who know they are creatures and who desire to submit to and serve him. Those, have, those who know they have no plea and no power, who aren't wanting to build their own kingdom, but seeking the glory of the all-powerful, almighty one. Here we have no doubt this God, Yahweh, has all power over the universe, a power he will exercise to bring judgment upon those who rebel against him. But Yahweh is full of peace towards his people. And that is a promise, a peace today and forevermore that we can rest on. And let us do that today as we look to him in prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you have demonstrated your power over all other so-called powers. That you are king over the flood, that there is none that stands outside of your control. And we thank you that you, the one with all power, you are the one who gives eternal peace to us. Bless us with that peace. Bless us as we look to you. May you Strengthen us in these things. And may you fill us with all peace in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.